<laughs> so get this. We're driving uh, to uh, one of the Occupy Flint people's uh, homes right now, and um, we're listening to NPR. And uh, they just talked about an incident where a couple of Walmart shoppers got into it uh, when one of the people there was trying to get to the uh, Xboxes that had just went on sale, the Nintendo Wii games. And so they pepper sprayed each other. I mean, seriously, it's not enough that we're going to peaceful protests and we're being, like, openly attacked, you know, with pepper spray, even when we're just sitting there peacefully, not doing anything, not physically threatening anyone. And what does this mean exactly for society now when people who are just trying to get to some frickin' Xboxes are going to pepper spray each other? Seriously? I mean, come on. What kind of consumer culture is that? You're going to commit acts of violence on each, you know, on each other on the level of the police state because you want to get an Xbox at a discount? Come on, people. I just That's just psychopathic levels of consumerism. Sorry, I just, I just heard that on the radio and I needed to be sure that I talked about that on the podcast because that's just frickin' ridiculous. Thanks. It's going to be the whole road. It's going to be the road warrior situation. Oh, wait. What was that, Niles? It's going to be a road warrior situation. A road warrior situation? You, know, you mean like when they're uh, going at it and like driving people down in each other's cars to take their toys? Yep, pretty much. Watch. It's going to happen. <laughs> so we're going to have anarchy in the consumer you know, lifestyle where people are going to start... But, you know, I know what I say, anarchy in the classic sense, not on the anarchist sense, you know, so that people can be sure they get their bottom dollar on their frickin' Xboxes. <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. Uh, I know some, uh, I know some women who are, like, down near violent when it comes to getting a good deal. Because <laughs> the fact that they think that this is such an important thing and it's not... <laughs> Well, remember that our consumer society is designed from the ground, designed from the ground up. I mean, they got a guy, as I say on the V Radio all the time, named Edward Bernays, whose entire purpose was to help train people to be consumers, you know, to help train society into thinking that their, you know, acquisition of goods was a symbol of their freedom. So now these people are going to pepper spray each other while fighting for their consumer freedoms. Just preposterous. Uh, no, I think it's just some people think try to keep their minds so damn worked up about it that actually you know I'm gonna back up. Yeah, so but yeah, so worked up about it, you're right. And it's it's funny actually how people um get so crazy about the holidays. You know, it's supposed to be this time of celebration but everybody love gets joy all joy and peace and Right, love, joy and peace and family and then you get yelling and screaming at each other if you mess you know, if you miss dinner or if you don't get the right gift or any number of other nonsense things. Well, you know, I understand about certain things, but like beating somebody up over a fucking Xbox or that's ridiculous. No, no, not just beating them up. Pepper spraying them. No, what I'm saying is violence over getting something like that. That's just fucking ridiculous. It's not like we're in like a state where you know we have no food and they're fighting over food. It's no, I'm fighting over a fucking Xbox. Ridiculous. <laughs> Profanity is not something we usually do in V Radio, but I understand where he's coming from completely in this particular instance. But we've arrived at our destination, so I'm going to go ahead and pause this for now. You're listening to V Radio. 
All right, I'm out here at Occupy Flint with Q. Um, Q preferred to be interviewed only audio, so we'll be adding this to the podcast. Uh, Q, um, how old are you? I'm 20 years old. How long have you been involved with Occupy? I've been involved with Occupy Flint since its beginning, so just a little over a month here. Excellent. How did you hear about it? Actually, through Twitter. Um, a famous musician and artist is a very close favorite of mine, his name's Lupe Fiasco, um, was sharing information on his Twitter blog about the Occupy movement and what it stood for, and after doing some research, I found that it fell right in line with the things that I had been pushing for my entire life, so it seemed natural. Um, about three days later, I got a, a event request to come to a meeting to plan an Occupy Flint session, and after that, you know, the story was told. Now, when you say that it had to do with a lot of things that you were pushing for your whole life, could you shed a little light on what that is? Um, I really found myself interested in urban economics and sustainability for the human people. Um, I've worked closely with the Peace Mob and the Kersey Park Redevelopment Project to really try to encourage people to take a stand for their own liber- their own liberties, you know, as growing their own foods, mm-hmm. producing their own adequate housing and heating, and t- really taking people off the grid so that they're able to sustain life themselves in the event that our government fails or collapses. That's excellent stuff. We talk about that on V Radio all the time, that the, the answer is to switch to sustainable systems rather than trying to patch holes in the broken system. It's kind of like a boat that just has too many holes in it and needs to just be completely rebuilt. Indeed. It's it's a a life change that is that is necessary for the survival of the human race. And I know I sound like an alien conspiracy theorist here, but we have to look at the facts. The fact is is that our government is leaving what it was designed for. The the Constitution was designed to liberate people from crooked systems all over the place. And our government has lost sight of that. So it's our job to take things back into our own hands and to really keep the human race stable. And not only just stable, but happy. Like I found that people who who come off the grid and, and employ these sustainable measures actually live happier lives than people who are stuck, you know, shopping at Walmart every other day. Absolutely. The people who are caught in the consumer rat race are just forever, always, never satisfied with what they have. They just kind of go on, you know, forever trying to acquire because they're told that, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that one day they'll be satisfied and happy if they buy more stuff. And then, But statistics have proven for people who live minimalist lifestyles, lower stress rates, better health, um, and overall just better well-being. Um, now, would you be willing to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the thesis you did that we talked about earlier? Um, in tenth grade I I wrote a, a paper and it was I spent about six months quite extensively quite extensively researching this project and I really was trying to describe in this paper how sustainable resource systems such as urban gardening, you know, the use of solar energy and that kind of thing leads to the development of the human race. The human race has undergone many changes from what was considered the caveman, if you will, for those who believe in it, or even from more primitive peoples in biblical times, for those who believe in creation theory, all the way down through life changes to the use of tools, the adaptation of, of simple machines, levers and pulleys, the use of heat energy and electricity energy up to the the current man, if you will. Like Homo erectus to Homo sapiens was one of the greatest leaps in the development of mankind as far as going from primitive thinking to sophisticated levels of thinking. 
and the human race is at a point where modern technology has become so extensive, people are forgetting how to think. They're forgetting how to take matters into their own hands and use the resources available to them to satisfy their needs and wants. And we're really trying to get back to that. Like, the Occupy Flint camp is a prime example of what people can do with nothing. We started here on an empty lot. We have heat. We have water. We're, we're insulating our camp now. We have residential space. We have common space. They're, these 20 people, like, live here. You know, we're living happily on an empty lot, whereas people who own a home and have to take out a second mortgage and they're trying to figure out how they're going to keep their electricity on through the winter are stressed out. And that stress wears down on their health, which depreciates the quality of life. When the quality of life goes down, the, the value of the dollar goes down. Actually, the value of the dollar goes up, excuse me. Right. Which basically means that people are, are stressing on all levels, which which leads to a breakdown in the... the the physiology of the human brain, which leads to more health issues. It's this vicious hamster wheel, and with every new cell phone that comes out, every new car, every new this, new that, the hamster wheel gets bigger. So you're take, it's taking longer to get the same place. And in, and in the end, you realize that you haven't gotten anywhere. No, absolutely. Technology, though, right now is being developed with the profit motive in mind. We could develop technology with a holistic approach that was used for bettering human life, like consider the solar panels that we're using here, as opposed to the you know coal plants, the nuclear plants that other places use to power themselves. You know, we could approach technology from a perspective of being for people rather than for profit. Do you acknowledge that possibility? I did briefly. Um, most people in Michigan during the winter end up paying actually through the entire year and they're paying about two thousand to twenty five hundred dollars for electricity and heating bill over the course of a year. You can buy a fifteen hundred dollar solar panel that will last you up to eighty years with proper maintenance. Mm -hmm. There is no reason why you should ever have to pay for something that you need to live. I think that's one one thing that most people in power have, have lost sight of is the fact that if you don't have heat in winter in Michigan, you will die. There were there have been what I think about fifteen people in the past ten ten or so years that have died because their heat was cut off in the wintertime. We have the same problem in some of these summers. People are dying because they don't have air conditioning. I mean, heat strokes are ridiculous. Like my grandmother used to feed us vitamins and minerals all through summer to make sure we're staying hydrated because we can't get it from our natural water supply. Right now, and that's. No, this has been a great conversation. I want to thank you for you know the brief interview that you've given me so far, and I have to say you're really well spoken. So I hope that you do spend more time sharing your information with other people. That's really what this is all about: is educating and spreading awareness. Now, um, give me if you can share a, a special moment from the Occupy Flip movement that maybe is something that you'll take away from it and share with your grandkids. Um. We were preparing to go, some of the members of Occupy Flint were preparing to go to what we're calling the Inter-Occupy Summit we had in Royal Oak, Michigan. It's um, about 10 or 15 minutes away from Detroit, Michigan. And um, we're going down the expressway, and there's two cars in line. And riding in the back car, all we see coming up from under the front car is this huge, like, 12-point buck and <laughs> literally was just laying in the middle of the road. And apparently the car in front of us didn't see it. We called him on the phone and pulled over to the gas station to make sure the undercarriage of the car was okay. But it really just, for one, one thing we thought was first that 
Michigan Department of Transportation is terrible <laughs> with their maintenance of the street. That's the, that's the piece of my bus. And two, that it was really just a bonding moment knowing that we can all come together, even under the weirdest of circumstances, mm-hmm. and really enjoy ourselves in what could have been a tragic moment. So we really have a lot of bonding experiences. Now, I know it sounds minuscule to someone listening at home. No, no, no. That's what I've, I've experienced that all over the Occupy movement. Is there's very much a family melding pot feeling going on. Everybody takes care of each other. It is, and one thing that's really interesting to know, especially, especially with Occupy Flint, is that 98.992% of all the people here had no existence of each other before this movement started. We all met in an empty park one day and said, hey, we're going to make a change in our community, and we've come together as a family. And even over these past five weeks, it's really shown that there are still good people out there with good intentions. Mm -hmm. And if we don't nurture that as a society, as a civilization, as a human race, we're going to lose the little bit of resources we have. I agree, absolutely. Thanks again, Q, for being on this uh, brief interview for V Radio. Thank you very much. It's really fun when, when, uh, like All right, so we're here once again with Occupy Flint. Um, right now we're sitting down to lunch while we're out doing outreach, passing out flyers Yaya's and all that. Chicken. Oh, yeah, Yaya's chicken. So we're taking some time to you know sit down for a moment and eat, and I figured I would um, record some conversation with these fellows for a future V Radio episode. So... Um, means that you have to start restart your antimatter conversation. <laughs> uh, but um, first I'm going to ask you guys to, uh, one at a time, introduce yourselves. And um, um, I'm going to ask you the same question I always ask everybody who I ever bring on my show. Um, and that question is, uh, what was the precipice? What was the moment in your life that made you go from being a average citizen who is part of the world to someone who is trying to make it better? And I'm going to start with you. I'm uh, Mike Burton. And uh, the answer to that question is uh, is actually pretty. I, I think you'll like it a lot because what happened to me was uh, I saw that Occupy was going on. There was limited coverage of it on the uh, uh, television. You know, uh, my wife and I um, both have full-time jobs, and we're barely able to get by paying the bills. And I did everything I was supposed to. Uh, went to college, did four years of college in two and a half years, uh, worked my butt off uh, at, at my job, and still you know, we're barely able to get by and not saving for retirement at all. Uh, can't afford to uh, to dip into the 401k or I wouldn't be able to make my bills, or you, you know, put into a 401k, I mean, right. uh, rather. But the, uh, you know, I, I knew something was wrong, and I, I started seeing this Occupy stuff, and I went to uh, uh, check it out because they weren't really covering it much on TV except to say, oh, Occupy is going on, uh, Occupy Wall Street, blah, 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 and then they would cut away and start talking about Kim Kardashian's latest uh, whatever, or, you know, who, which celebrity was was, uh, was going through rehab, or, you know, they, they'd start going off on more important stuff. Uh, who, who won the latest reality TV show, game show, part, and Biggest Loser, all that stuff. And so I went online, tried to look it up, and... Like the the major media sites basically weren't covering it at all, and when that where they were covering it, I found things like on Fox News or oh they're just a bunch of dirty hippies that don't have a job. I was like, well, well that doesn't seem right. So I started looking around in more alternative media places, and I found 
that no, that's not true. And as a matter of fact, no, they're, they're finally standing up to do something about the problem that I've been feeling in the back of my head this whole time. I knew there was a problem. They're standing up to do something about it. And basically, they're just getting ignored by the media. I thought, wait a second, that's not right. Isn't it our, our media's job to, to tell us these stories? Why are they covering it up? So I immediately went to Facebook and created uh, a website, or a, a Facebook page, rather, called um, Occupy the Media. And it came with a call to action, which was hastily written um, and, and very passionate. And it's now up to something coming up on, I think, 400 likes. It's not a huge thing, but what it does is it, it creates a, um, a Facebook uh, connection for all the Occupies, because we go through and we like every single Occupy. And then if you come in to Occupy the media and you just sit there and watch, you can see uh, uh, the feeds coming in from every other Occupy that we've liked right onto our, our page. And then whenever we write something and send it back out, it goes out to all those other occupies. So it, it was just my um, my way of trying to make sure that this information was getting spread around because the media wasn't covering it. And then uh, I went down um, for Occupy the Media to cover uh, the Occupy Flint the first day there on October 14th. And it was huge. Like the union was out there. The, the regular people were out there. And, I mean, there were 200, 300 people out there in front of Bank of America. I was like, wow, that's awesome. So I went the next day and went down to the, the base camp and kind of met some of the people. And I've just been going back ever since. Like, it's a full-time job. So um, how did this actually end up with you going from being on Facebook to being involved with the camp? Well, um, I started by uh, just protesting down on the corner, but after a while it became apparent that we needed to do um, more outreach type things, and uh, one of my hobbies is, is writing, and uh, the first thing I did was I sat down with uh, Kat Shaw and we went over this trifold that she had designed and, and all the Occupy people had kind of contributed to writing it. And I smoothed out the language in a little bit, made it made it sound better. We changed some of the things in the middle um, so that it has examples of you know who the 99% are. And it's got the Zuccotti Park. Yeah, it's got the Zuccotti it. Park statement on the back, and and you know, we really liked the way that that worked out. And so I started going through and um, doing some more flyers and some more information, and and just kind of became like the camp media guy. And whenever I had time, I was always out putting it on cars, handing it to people. Right, right. You know, not just downtown either. We went out to the east side. We went out to the north end with a megaphone. Now, who would do that besides Occupy Flint? Yeah. <laughs> Walking well, through neighborhoods in the north end with a megaphone. Well, let's actually take a moment then and introduce you to the audience. Um, go ahead and you know give your name and then same question. What was the precipice that made you go from being someone who was part of the world to someone trying to make it better? Well, uh... Let's see, where to start? Okay, uh, my buddy Cass, like, uh, sent me a thing on Facebook, and I kind of looked it over, but uh, I didn't really read through it, because, you know, I, I, who does on Facebook, let's be honest. <laughs> and uh, then he ended up dragging me out to the camp, and, uh, you know, I talked to some people, and it, it instantly caught my attention, because, like, all these people were, you know, saying the same types of things that I've been saying, you know, quietly for, well, since I got out of the Army, which, I mean, I, I realized, you know, 
in the army that uh, I was just getting screwed over again and again and again. You know, not just by the government, but by corporations. You know, like uh, Bank of America, for example. Uh, I overdrew uh, my account one time, and they ended up charging me a ridiculous amount in overdraft fees and late fees, and just like, damn. You know, this went from being like 75 cents in the hole to being $400 in the hole in like two weeks. You know, there's no reason for that whatsoever. And uh, I haven't paid it back. I don't plan to. Thanks, American can kiss my ass. I don't know if I can swear. You can, you can, yeah, just <laughs> kiss my ass is fine. Just don't overdo it because kids do listen to my show. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, anyway, uh, you know, I, I, I hadn't even heard of the Occupy movement at all at that point. I went home, I got on YouTube, I started looking stuff up, and, uh, you know, I pretty much went back to the camp and never went back home, you know? Like, uh, I was in the middle of looking for a job, and then I realized, you know, that it was pointless, because even when I did have a full-time job working 40 hours a week, I still couldn't make ends meet. I still had to have food stamps, and even then, I still didn't have the money to, you know, pay my bills. And uh, I learned a lot more about alternative energies, and that's, you know, something that I think we need to put a lot more emphasis on, because if places were running on solar, you know, and not paying consumers' energy a ridiculous amount for power, you know, or having rain catchment or, like, you know, personal wells, we wouldn't have to worry about, you know, what, $70 a month water bills? Come on, water is a natural resource. We should not have to pay a ridiculous amount for it. The kind of air tax. Well, we're doing better than a lot of other countries that can't even manage to get safe water at all, but for sure, you know, it is a human right, and uh, obviously most of my listeners advocate the resource-based economy models, so we talk about being able to produce the things that people need without a price tag and just associate it with being trade a community for, effort. Right, trade for goods or services. That's exactly what I've been stressing every day. Mm-hmm. And skills. Yeah, right. I said skills and well, even if it's just yeah, a matter of, like, right, you don't have right. to trade it, you just, everybody gets together and says, well, now we're going to build the community power plant, now we're going right, to build the community, right. community water plant, and then it doesn't have to be, well, I'm giving you this because you're going to give me that. It's, I'm giving you this, I'm giving everyone this, and then everybody contributes. That, that's kind of, you know, right. like, like it is at the camp. You know, and actually, let's talk a little bit about the alternative energy at the camp. Um, I know you guys aren't, you know, the specific go-to people about that, but I'm sure you could talk a little bit about how the camp has... Um, Evolved, even just from the perspective of what camp life is like, oh, thanks God. to the alternative energy. Okay, let's uh, let's start from when I first showed up. Uh, I, I guess I showed up and it was just a couple shitty easy ups, you know, like a white gas stove and a grill. That was the kitchen, you know. There wasn't. It wasn't like it is now. We had this tobacco tent. And I specifically remember, like, you know, people sitting in chairs in the corners so the fire wouldn't blow away. You know, and then trying to tarp everything over so it doesn't get rained on and everything gets soaked. I mean, we've been through some shit out there, but, uh, you know, overall it's been good, and we just keep improving the camp constantly, you know, through donations and through purchases, through the cash donations, just constantly improving. And the solar array, like, uh, at first it was on the bus, and we were only getting about 30% of the sunlight that we get now, or, you know, some, somewhere along those lines. So, you know, it was, it was kind of hard at first, but, uh, you know, now we've got it up where it gets a full solar day, and it's 420 watts plus the 110 watt system. So we've got house and backup power. Like, you know, we only run the generator now and then. Like, I think it's been like, well, with the exceptional last week, because we've been running a lot of power tools and such. Right. And but and big has to be run. Right. So but uh, other than that, I mean, we typically don't run the generator like maybe once a week, if that, for like two hours. You know. Fair enough. 
Yeah, the, um, the it's kind of interesting how we came into the solar too. I, I like to tell that story because Cat, uh, um, who is uh, a, a pretty big presence on the media and outreach team, um, was one of the people who helped get all the ball rolling on this whole Occupy Flint thing. And she was sitting there with Jaron, um, who's another was another organizer, uh, original organizer. And um, they were sitting there working on laptops in the camp, sitting in a tent. And uh, Jason, uh, who is our go-to guy with the, the technology and, and, and alternative uh, and appropriate technologies type stuff, is, uh, I, I like that phrase, appropriate technologies. Um, yeah. Yeah. He go. He he came along and and what are you guys doing? And they explained it to him and he's like, oh, oh well, I got some stuff at home that you know can can help power this. And it sounds like a really good idea. And so he showed up the next day with all the solar power stuff and started setting it up. And I mean, it's it's been just improving from there. Yep. We try our best to get maximum efficiency as well as uh, you know like he said he's got another couple panels he could bring if we have to. But right now there's no demand for it. You know like uh, I mean we can power that big ass 120 watt guitar amp off the solar power. I mean granted it takes about half of the power of the panels putting out, but. Still, once we really get our media team running um, uh, on site, we're going to be running, you know, a couple different laptops and and. Uh, well, we already do that. <laughs> well, I mean, constantly though. Right. We don't do it as constantly as we used to. Well, once we get that internet up, that's going to change. Exactly. That's what that's what I'm saying is that when the internet shows up, we're right also going to be running. <laughs> we're going to be running the um, uh, probably the wireless on our laptops, and that's going to cost you know, energy. Because wireless takes up a lot of energy, so um, there's going to be a lot bigger of a, a, a load on it, and I, I think that um, we're, we're going to show that we can sustain that effort pretty much off grid as far as power, um, and with only needing to occasionally supplement that with the uh, with the generator. And if we could get, we also have a wind turbine sitting there on camp that hasn't been put up yet. Oh, yeah, that's. Uh, the table. <laughs> uh, that's on the project list. Yeah, probably. And once, yeah, once that wind turbine goes up, we're also we're, that's going to be even more power that we can put into those batteries um, for for powering our our efforts. Especially with how windy the camp is, right, there's something going on in the yeah. city with the way the buildings are that just yeah. throws the wind, the wind right through there. Yeah. Uh, so vent venturi. The, Durant, the wind whips around the Durant and just meets right at the campsite, so it's like perfect. Right. And or it hits the Durant, comes down, hits the street, and comes right. back at the camp. So either way, there's just a really big high-pressure system of wind right there all the time. Now, something you were saying in the camp earlier that I really liked that I was hoping you could share, share with my listeners during this interview is uh, your thoughts about how you think that this is the beginnings of a new society. I, I do. I think that uh, we are just changing society one person at a time. Um, you know, we are coming together all over the world with these little communities of people saying, hey, we're fed up with this. And, you know, we're basically just trying to do this for ourselves, get our voices out there. So I think, yes, in a way, we are creating a new society. But I don't, I also think that that's not something that people should be afraid of. You know, because we're doing this for the people, and they're just so used to people walking all over them that they don't want to see a new society. People are afraid of change. Exactly. Right. Because they're not sure what it's going to be a change to. Exactly. Right. And, and you know, when you've got resources coming in to your uh, uh, your life, uh, things that make that, that make your life go, like food, uh, uh, toys, you know, 
things like that, you know, just your supply chain, I, I would call it. Um, whenever somebody suggests a change to the way that things are done, uh, I think that you immediately start thinking about your supply chain. And, you know, even if it's not conscious, you're like, wait, no, is this going to disrupt my ability to live and live comfortably? So I think that that's been, like I said, if, if not consciously, subconsciously, something that, that worries people. It's that, you know, life is not going to be the same if change happens. Well, that's, this life is my assessment. Well, no, that's what, that's what I mean. That it, Thinking about it from that perspective is it's, it's not going to be the same, but you know, don't don't worry. We can make it better. The beginning is near, right? <laughs> we occupied Hammerbird Rock a while back, and we painted that on the big side of it. The beginning is near, huge. Yeah, that's uh, that's people people are worried about the end of something, but they don't realize that every time something ends, there's a new beginning. That's the beginning of something else. That's usually what I tell the. The 2012ers who are reading all these calendars and all that and saying that the world is going to end. Hmm. I'm an agnostic atheist, so I don't believe in metaphysics, but I did do my time, you know, experimenting with that mode of thinking. And uh, even uh, in divination for primitive cultures, it was always understood that anything that symbolized death or destruction was always uh, before a new beginning. And, you know, you only have so many building blocks when you're playing with Legos. You have to take something apart to make something different. And that's not always going to be bad. You know, in fact, in many cases, it's going to be good. It's, it's part of the natural process that, you know, you, you're going to have to be able to make, you know, de, you know, destroy one thing to make something else. And it, the word destroy, it doesn't even have to be violent. It could be a completely peaceful transition, as we're already seeing in many different ways. You know, society getting better, at least as long as intelligent, you know, management of resources is used and as long as people actually have the the highest good for all mankind as a priority things will get better now I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the, the, the outreach work that you guys are doing um, and um, have you guys done any kind of direct actions <laughs> as far as direct actions we've we've done a few different things we so. camped out at City Hall on election yeah. day uh, that was that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it w went pretty well. I mean, we we had the, the response from the police was essentially, "Hey, how you doing?" And no, I can't take literature because I'm in uniform. Um, people saw us. We we ran into people who were trying to get that petition signed. They they were from the fire department, and, and they, that's how they we came got over and talked to with us. The petition yep. as well. Yep. Because uh, we we saw immediately, you know, that that's a problem. We in Flint, the last time that they cut fire department and police department, the first thing that happened was, you know, Mass arson. everything started catching on fire. And, you know, emergency manager comes in here and starts doing some stuff where, you know, he cuts the police department. It's going to happen again. Uh, this place is going to go up in flames. We that's as not citizens, good. I think, have to give him help. Like, you know, basically is what I'm saying here. Like, we can't just let him get away with being a local dictator, essentially. Like, if you start slaying off firefighters and whatnot, we need to, like, get a volunteer uh, fire know, brigade. Yeah, fire brigade, and, you know, I mean, like, kind of like we're doing with the uh, peace officer deal. You know, we need to get more people to do that, like, more neighborhood watches, things along those lines. Like, show the EFM that, hey, we don't need you. <laughs> we can govern ourselves, and, right. and you can't silence our voice, you know, just go away. What has the relationship like been with the Flint Police Department and Occupy Flint? It's 
been completely peaceful, and uh, you know, I I haven't really run into too many officers, but I do know that one of our uh, outreach teams went into the police department. I was one of them yep. actually. Yeah, we went into the that. sheriff's department on visitation day. Uh, you know, when there's a room full of people that are waiting for hours to see their loved ones, and they're all pissed off at the system because it shouldn't ever take that long. Mm-hmm. You know, for just a half hour visit. Um, but that's my opinion anyway. But uh, anyway, we went up there and talked to some people, handed stuff out, and the deputy walked through and he just like stopped and shook my, my hand and said, hi, how you doing? You know, we appreciate what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Like, you know, that was, uh, I believe that was the day that we were camped out at City Hall. Maybe yep. the day before. It was right around then. I know I know it was right around then sometime. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, like that was enlightening right there. I was just like, all right, well, you know, that really shows that we're in this together. That's actually a, an issue that's a point of contention with me is I, of course, appreciate all of the occupies, but um, some of them obviously have had a much harder time with the police force. And, like um, Oakland, for example. Yeah, Oakland was the first one that came to mind when I was thinking about that. Um, They've had it hardest, I think. Yeah, and well, I've talked to some people who are citizens of California that were on another show with me talking about this when they interviewed me about Occupy Detroit. and. They said that apparently the Oak, the people, citizens of Oakland, have been having problems with their police department way before the Occupy movement ever showed up, and I guess they have a reputation for being a rough police department in general. I, I have heard that. Yeah, so have I. Yeah. So, um, you guys also, that was the other thing I, I was wanted to take note of. You guys have porta potties, and they were initially donated by a state senator. Senator John Gleason, yes, uh, originally donated those for I believe a week or so. Um, or he was he was basically trying to get him for as long as he could, but then the uh, UAW stepped in and, and they paid for him for 60 days, and then yep. they came in and paid for another 60, I believe. Yep. So we've been getting a lot of support, especially from the unions, because I mean <laughs> that's what right. unions do is the they occupy public unions, space. Uh, uh, electricians union came by and dropped the donation uh, a couple different times. Yep. Um, you know, just people from all walks of life show up and they're like, hey, what can we do to help? You know, like, even, like, there's been, there's a bunch of these type of people, like, older ladies that really want to do stuff that were, you know, either involved in the movements in the 60s or, you know, like, have seen what society has become, you know, are just, like, hey, we want to help out, but we can't camp out here, obviously, because we're, like, 80 years old, you know, but they come out there and they cook us food and, you know, they show their support. Right, you know, and that way, great. that way we're able to because our our, our camp has become um, it's it's very secure, uh, it's getting winterized. It's it's a place where we can go and retreat to and and relax and and uh, kind of plan our next move. And going back to the outreach stuff, it's 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 like our base of operations where we can do outreach from our camp. Uh, and like we're going to do here in a little bit, we're going to go over to Walmart and and start flyering over at Walmart. Uh, and, and do our pounding pavement type stuff, but uh, then you know if we get kicked off the Walmart property, we can we can go. Which we regroup, probably will. Which we probably will. Yeah, we can <laughs> we can go regroup at camp and you know uh, uh, maybe grab some different people and go out and try it again. You know, that's different faces because they they kick certain people off and then they see new people and they have to come and kick those people off too. So it's kind of cool having a, a place that you can retreat to and it's private property. So that gives us um, a lot more flexibility than some of the other occupies because we can go out to public space and they can throw us off the public space, but they can't get rid of us. You know. Right. That's actually one of the major reasons that Occupy Detroit has moved to a building for the time being is that it's just a base of operations, mm-hmm. you know, and it allows us to 
you know, move into other situations, just use it as a headquarters right, right. where nobody can right. mess with us. I like to think that, that Occupy Flint has um, kind of demonstrated that model and that other people are, are they like it because it works. Um, so, I, yay us. <laughs> but uh, it's um, it, it definitely is a, 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 a you know, as, as far as doing those direct actions, it's, it's a really good safety net. Um, because we, we have plans in the future here to go and occupy the Riverbank Park. Yeah. Which it turns out the Riverbank Park is not supposed to close. It's supposed to be open 24 hours. But they have signs illegally posted that say it closes at dusk, like right. the rest of the parks in the city. Right. That's and, true. and so our civil disobedience part of that is going to be the fact that we put tents up because there is something about tents in the, in the, uh, uh, the code says you know, no tents in, in city parks. So, but, you know, we occupy the shit out of places. <laughs> so we'll, we'll put the tents up, and you know, if they're going to try and tell us, well, no, the park's closed, you have to leave, we can say, no, it's not. Here's the law. Uh, we've got it right here. Copy of the and say, you know, you're going to have to come up with something else. Well, you can't have tents here. Okay, well, you're right. We'll pick up our tents, go back to camp. As soon as they leave, we'll pick our tents back up, go right back out there and put them right back down. Because we're we also, have a place to, uh, to do that. Uh, we're we're also working on getting copies of podcast constitutions to hand out. Like we have a few of them floating around camp. I almost always have them on me, but I don't right now. But you know, we just always. I just wanted to ask you real quick um, on that. Do you, do you like that copy that I made? Because I can make those for about thirty-five cents a copy. Yeah. Okay, so I'll just, I'll yeah. just do that. So, pocket constitutions, I actually still have mine back from when I was involved with the Ron Paul campaign. I bought one during one of his money bombs to keep him in Congress. Um, a lot of people don't even, they're not even familiar with the document. They're not really familiar with what's in it, and it makes it really easy for their rights to be taken away. Yep. Um, that is one thing I'd have to say that was interesting about Occupy Flint, and I, I do plan on getting a, a, that story. I'm saving what's left of my memory. Um, with, for the stories that uh, uh, I think his name is Jason tells about yeah. like his Freeman experiences and you know you all, all the ways he's gotten audio. arrested. That's I'm gonna do that, yeah, yeah because I, I told him I was like you know I could just do that audio, but the the physical theatrics he uses when he's telling the story he, he's are so amazing. Stories. He's he's a he's a uh, very very intelligent yeah, individual. He's he a very and valuable member of uh, Occupy Flight. You know we all learn from him. Well, I mean we all learn from each other, but he has a lot more as far as rights and freedoms go than most people do. Right. And I've learned, you know, within the last, what is it, 43 days? Well, I haven't been, I came in on like day seven, I guess. So the last uh, almost 40 days, you know, I just, I've learned so much from him about freedoms and rights and, you know, what we got to do to uphold those rights. And, and alternative you, you heard, Yeah, I did. I I really regretted not having my camera out for them. I hope when he retells them that they'll be just as impassioned in them. (laughs) They actually get better every time. I've heard that story about six times, and it gets more detailed every time. Right. Right. He's he's really good at that, and and once you get him going, it's great. You just wind him up and let him go. Um, Right, you're probably going to have to edit it a little bit, because he'll just go on and on. But that's a good thing, don't get me wrong, but I mean... Right, because it's never boring. (laughs) Right. That, that's the cool thing. Is that, uh, yeah. I've been told that when I ramble, I'm I'm about 80% boring, but I'd say he's he's definitely better than that. Or 80%. I'm 80% interesting. I'm sorry. 80% I'd say interesting. he's about 99% interesting. Right. Because right. we are the 99. We are in fact the 99%. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So um, Let's toss some more numbers around. Uh, uh, 42. <laughs> 73. Oh man, have you guys seen some of that? There's like that. 
that campaign going on on the internet right now and people kind of making fun of us with their stupid little parodies like, you know, I worked three jobs and I had no health care and, and I had to do everything to get myself put through school and I don't blame the corporations and it's, it's you know, it's all my choices and me, me, you know, it's like I am the, the 53% yeah, or whatever the hell they call themselves or just, yeah. some of them are like, okay, so you had to work three jobs, had no health care, and you basically were a wage slave your entire life. Your family never gets to see you. Your children never get to see you. But everything is fine, and it's not the corporate fault. You know, corporation's fault. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I just, you know, I let that stuff roll off of me because those, those people are are. R two D two had something yeah, to yeah, add today. Uh, it's really <laughs> sad that people honestly think that. Uh, if they honestly think that, if it's not just you know people being stupid, uh, or, or trying to parody us. If they honestly think that, it's just sad that they think that that's how things are supposed to be. Because I did the same thing. I worked three jobs when I was going to school. Um, it, it, it eventually peeled down to doing one, one full-time job while I was going to school. And I did school at a pretty rapid pace, you know, taking a really heavy class schedule uh, schedule load. And I don't know if you've ever done online schooling, um, but it, it's a lot different than doing classroom schooling. And you have to be self-motivated or you will not get it done. And getting four years of online schooling done in two and a half years, uh, that, that takes a lot of motiv motivation and dedication. And a lot of people don't succeed <laughs> doing that online stuff. And that's what I did. I did online online courses. Um, and I did uh, also, my, my classroom stuff was, was also at a place in Flint where I had to be a good portion of my time. Um, and I spent a lot, of, a lot of money on those classes as well. Um, and then I, you know, I was working a full-time job, sort of related to what I was going to school for, and I was working uh, a part-time job uh, for a long time at the local planetarium giving shows, and then I was also working uh, for a bookstore uh, part-time, just kind of because uh, uh, I had transitioned from working full-time at the bookstore to doing this at these other jobs. But clearly, we're all a bunch of lazy bums who just need right. to get a job and are too lazy. You know, we just you know can't get work, or rather, we won't get work and. We're not interested in work, you know. That's that. This the thing actually is like uh, I found when I was conducting all my interviews at Occupy Detroit was the fact that they I didn't really find anybody who fit that demographic at all, and I did find a lot of people who did what the free marketeers say. Well, re-educate yourself, re-educate yourself. There was one lady, she re-educated herself four times, started her own small businesses, all the things that they tell you to do, and she still ended up homeless when it was all over. Worked her butt off her whole life to be in the same frickin' situation she was in. I also ran into a lot of people who originally were one percenters who watched as the economy fell out from under them, and, you know, now they're, you know, part of Occupy Detroit and homeless, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny that... Um, yeah, we, we have a pretty wide demographic of um, political positions. We have Tea Partiers that hang out. We have Republicans. We have Democrats. We anonymous. have very wide. We have, yeah, we have Anonymous. We have a very wide spectrum of, of political positions. Uh, we even have our own you know, real-life communist. Um, As opposed to a, a fake communist. Or, <laughs> or He's a real-life communist. He's a, he's a real communist, and, and you know, he's still alive and still... Still, still able to. Uh, I mean, what's really funny is he's a, a, a communist and he's Jewish. You know, it's, <laughs> it seems sort of ironic, but he's uh, he, he's a he's a smart guy. He's very passionate. Um, you know, it's it's a very wide wide assemblage of people, and yet you know we can all agree on this this problem. You know, it's it's it's, it's real real interesting to me that you know all these people who normally would be at each other's 
Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> what is it? What are we looking at? Just the pickup that just drove by that said we are the 99% oh. the website on it. Awesome. OccupyFlint.org. Yeah. OccupyFlint.org. That's right. <laughs> okay. So now I've just been rambling and forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> no, it's fine. You were talking about the diverse group within Occupy oh, Flint. Right, right, right. And and the um, uh, just the idea that all these you know different people from different walks of life and different you know political positions can come together and say, okay, there there's seriously a problem here, and we need to fix it, and and agree, just just on that fact in the first place that's really cool to me and I, uh, one of the things that I was going to I was going to say too was uh, I've never had so many people in my life uh, as when I've been down you know holding a sign doing the protesting people walk up and ask me, well, what's this all about and I'll kind of explain it to them they say to me and I quote and I've heard this probably half a dozen times at least and that's that's a lot because I've never heard this before I used to be a conservative but then I started thinking for myself <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am totally quoting that and putting that on the Zeitgeist newsletter. Yeah, I used to be a conservative, and I started thinking for myself. And, and I mean, there are a lot. One of my best friends uh, growing up is a conservative, and he's a very smart guy, and he does think for himself. And you know, it's not not all conservatives are sheep, and, and there are plenty of uh, uh, liberals who are sheep. You know, it's they just follow what whatever you know somebody tells them to do because. Uh, they, they don't really think for themselves. Yeah. Green Party. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just one of those things, you know. When people start kind of waking up and saying, like, hey, wait a second, that's not right. Or I don't necessarily agree with, with my party's opinion on that, so now what do I do? So do I just keep, you know, going, you know, go Republican or go Democrat? Or do I say, like, mm, that's enough? <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's Form a caucus or join a different party or just recognize that the political system's only real benefit is as a soapbox to spread your ideas anyway. Um, right. Canada's political system, in my opinion, is much... Uh, I lived in Canton for a while and didn't have cable or, uh, you know, uh, what do they call those things, a digital receiver. And Canada was still analog, so I got Channel 9 out of Windsor. And uh, on election day, I literally sat there and watched it because I wanted to know how their politics were in comparison to ours. And from what I observed, like, you know, they have, like, seven political parties. So, you know, like, there's a lot more coverage of the people's voices there than there is in our two-party system that doesn't really ever get anything done. Well, I had a lady named Connie Fogel, who's the leader of the Canadian Action Party, which is kind of a, a party, basically, that's based on a lot of the same stuff that we talk about as activists, only over there. A lot of people call her, like, the Canadian Ron Paul. So, yeah, it is a lot better because they have more parties, but there definitely is still a hard... You know, she can't get in any of the debates. It's it's really unfair. I was it glad, though, unfair, to, to see in some countries... Well, yeah, no, for sure. And there are some countries, like, you know, uh, Australia actually has Green Party parliament members. They may, they've managed to get into the parliament. Um, yeah, i got friends over there, a lot of listeners in Australia who will be listening to this, too. So... Thanks to the power of the internet, you guys uh, yeah, got to share with, you know, with all these people all over the world. You know, um, do you guys have any parting words for the world that's listening? No, uh, I think that uh, the most important thing, uh, if, if you don't take anything else away from the whole concept of Occupy, is to educate yourself and ask questions, and ask questions and don't be afraid to, to have a discussion with people because people are afraid that you know they're going to show up at our camp and if we don't agree with what they're saying we're going to start yelling and shouting them down that's not the case everybody, we, has, a voice. everybody has a voice and we need those opinions we need 
people who don't agree with us to show up so that we can talk about it because this is absolutely this is a conversation that we as people need to have. Well, it is one of the That's things about, well, yeah, is about the Occupy movement is that because there are so many different ideologies, people are talking about different solutions, and there is a lot of open talk. I've heard very little angry talk about ideologies. You know, there they'll be infighting with different groups, just like there is in all social situations where there's just, you know situations of scarcity or you know that'll de- develop you know resentment. But it's very rarely over the ideologies. I don't hear any knockdown, dragout fights between the Tea Party guys who were in Occupy Detroit and the ones that are communists or socialists or Green Party or whatever. So that's really good, and that's actually what a free-thinking society is supposed to be like. I used to be part of the Libertarian Party, and that's supposedly a free-thinking society, and those people are vicious to anyone who doesn't sound exactly like them. So, um, But thanks again, guys, for being on here and um, you know uh, helping me out with my alternative media. It's been a great experience so far here at Occupy Flint. And um, I'm looking forward now to, you know, for those of you who are listening, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, I took some excellent um, video footage of. And um, our astromech joint here at uh, Occupy Flint, um, our R2, R3 over here, um, occasionally wants to pipe in. Actually, it's just somebody's cell phone, but I thought I'd add that. That's one of the things about on-field reporting, guys, is you're going to get all kinds of noises you don't get when, you know, I'm in my nice, quiet room at home. But anyway, as I was saying... (laughs) um, you know, this is basically your donations, at dollars at work, guys. I decided I wanted to get out and report things on the ground, and now that there's actually something going on in Michigan worth reporting, um, you know, between that and, uh, well, it's just been a dead zone for so long. Um, well, like Michael and, Morris said, we're ground zero for the economy, you know. Like, here in the 80s, and it didn't hit the rest of the country as hard until, what, like 2008? Well, actually, let's take a super quick moment about that. You guys got a visit from Michael Moore. Do you want to talk about that? We actually had the balcony at his uh, book signing at the Whiting as well, and we mic checked him twice, and he thought it was great. Uh, yeah. He uh, gave us about, like, what, a 10, 15-minute shout-out, well, about the Occupy movement in general and how great it was and how we should go out and help out. Um, you know, he encouraged, uh, you know, inner Occupy, you know, communications. He, he encouraged uh, that we... Occupy foreclosures. Uh, I'm sure that there's been talk about that in Detroit as well. Yeah. Uh, Occupy Atlanta did it, and they had some pretty good success. Um, let's see. Uh, what else was there? Uh, as far as the Mike Moore stuff, talking about yeah. us. Yeah. But yeah, he uh, he he did um, he did mention. You know, he he's been around doing a lot of support for Occupy, and he he was telling people like, look, you know, these these are the people who are you know opening up their minds, and and or they've already opened up their minds, and they're already standing up and saying, you know, hey, this is wrong. We need to do something. And just on a, a slight personal note. Um, I've never been an activist before. I know. Me either. Uh, you know, and it, it's just gotten to the point where something needs to be done, and, and you know, Occupy is all about trying to get that information out there so that we know that there's something wrong, so that when it comes time to vote, when it comes time to occupy our government, when it comes time to do things that need to be done, occupy yeah, when it comes time to do those things, people are aware that there's a problem and will have that in their mind when they go to the polls. Maybe they won't. I heard somebody saying, uh, I don't remember who it was, but it was um, an interview on TV, and he said, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, the lesser of two evils is just no longer good enough for for Americans. It's just no longer good enough. We can't just have this this two-party system thing. It's killing us. And, you know, and and Mr. Moore went on about um, a a good while just encouraging people to come out and talk to us and, and all that kind of stuff. And, 
It was really, that was really fun. It was a good time. Is yeah. he making another documentary? Is that what this is about? Is he making uh, he one about released, Occupy? He just released uh, an autobiography. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, here comes the trouble. Yeah, some of the stories in it were pretty interesting. Like uh, when him and his stoner friends uh, tried to escape to Canada. Because they, they were doing a dry run for um, they were they were worried about getting drafted the next year for Vietnam, and so they were doing a dry run to uh, practice their escape technique to get over to Canada. And they had taken a boat and they went down to the water and were gonna you know they didn't have a motor or there was oars. no motor no <laughs> oars and they were like oh crap well you know let's go up over the bridge we'll we'll, we'll make a run for it we'll just gun it when they when they when they try to stop us and. That was a pretty cool story. And there, there were some sad stories in there, too. Yeah, um, several sad stories. Some of the stories that he told about how he got involved in activism, they are pretty pretty lively. Uh, one of the first things that he did was uh, took down the Elks Club, <laughs> which, was, which was interesting. That was, yeah, that was a really amusing story, and it was very uh, uplifting, I guess, is the best way to put it. Just right? like, you know, the 17-year-old kid takes down the racism in private clubs almost, well, I can't say single-handedly, but he's but he definitely, Yeah, he definitely set it off. You know, you know it, it's it's empowering when you see the different ways that you can actually change people um, through activism. And I think it is something like, you know, the fact that the two of you now are brand new activists, that this is the thing that brought you in. I've been doing this since 2008. I mean, I've always been an open-minded guy, but as far as like a full-time activist, like you guys are living it right now. And this is your first experience with it, and you just caught it, and you just were drawn into it like right away. I mean, is that basically the? It's just kind of like a magic that just takes you over. Would you say that's a, a good yeah. analogy? Yeah, I, I would. I, I, I like I've said several times, like I almost feel like I was born for this. For a long time, I felt like I should have been born in the '60s so I could be, you know, a part of you know some of the social movements that went on then. And then this happened, and I'm like, this is bigger than any of that. This is great, you know. This is what I was born for, almost, you know. Well, I've always had more of a um, a, a reporter type outlook on life, where I would observe and report, and 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 you know, watch things happen, and formulate opinions, and then go out and report on it, like write something, or, or you know, I would observe people, and uh, because you know, writing is my is my passion, and. Um, but it just got to the point where, like, I can't just stand by anymore and just watch. Mm-hmm. So that's, and yeah, it just it's absolutely sucked me right in because it, it's all the same things. Like, I've heard people say it, it's all the same things I've been screaming about since I was in high school. <laughs> I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Uh, and and you know, people wouldn't, it, it, it's really hard to, to say you know, that I've never done any type of activism before, but because I have been involved here and there in little things and little actions and, you know, nothing ever this public, though. I, I showed up at Occupy Flint and just almost immediately was co-opted as a, uh, a person who, like, as soon as the camera shows up, they're like, Mike, go talk to these people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like today, for example, yeah. NBC25 came there, I know you talked to him. And right, right, and you, you heard people were like, Mike, Mike, get over here. <laughs> Mike, check. Right. right. Check for Mike. That's our, our He's got to be here somewhere. Our, our Mike <laughs> checking Michael Moore, though, that was like the highlight right. of that week. It was a Mike check of a Mike. By a Mike. Yeah, by, by a Mike. Mike, yeah. <laughs> Mike checked Mike. Right. Rob kept saying Yeah, he kept saying that. You think that Mike was thoroughly checked? He, he, that he, mic said, uh, he actually did say when, when we finished the mic check, the mic check went, um, Michael Moore, thank you for being the voice of the truth and for supporting Occupy. Right. Was, was what we said. Initially. Right. And we said something else later. And he turned around and he said, 
thank you. You know, that was the nicest thing you guys could have done. Right, and he was just like, uh, obviously Occupy Flint has occupied the balcony. Right, right. <laughs> and then uh, at the end we said, uh, Michael Moore, you know, uh, we'd like to invite you and everyone here uh, back to our camp. And I'm okay in a second. Okay Would you say a capitalism, a love story, had an impact on your decision to be part of Occupy? No, I, I had, I haven't seen it. Like yeah. I, oh, I literally we'll have to fix that. You oh, like I, it. I know, I know. Um, I, I, I actually know. I always like everything that, that he does. I, I um, uh, Bowling for Columbine, dude. A lot I've of that. Uh, a lot of that stuff, <laughs> like the Kayla Rowland stuff that happened just down the street from where I live. That's messed up. Right, and um, I think another one that was really a catalyst was uh, Inside Job. Have you guys seen Inside Job? I have not. Oh wow! Well, it, it's on our it's on our to do list, but we've been so freaking busy. Well, yeah, it's it's just it's an expose on the highway robbery that the that the bailout system was, but. Um, but once again, gentlemen, uh, thanks again for being on. And, um, you know, to all those of you who are listening, be sure to check out the YouTube channel because now um, there's been a donation of video equipment to V Radio. So I've been able to go around and um, c- catch a lot of great video of what the stuff that these guys are doing. And I'm going to be doing the same thing for Occupy Detroit. It's actually on my list of things to do to try to go to Occupy Lansing at some point and maybe even get down to Ohio, do some stuff with Occupies down there. So. I can't travel as much as, say, Charlie Veach, but he is one of the inspirations for me doing this with the Love Police. The guy goes around all over the world. Have you been exposed to Charlie Veach yet? I think I've, I think I've seen him, yeah. yeah I've been exposed to Charlie Sheen. Well, <laughs> no, it's a different kind all? of activist. Haven't we all you know? been a different kind of exposure? <laughs> Winning! <laughs> yeah, different kind of exposure. All right, thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a great day, YouTube. All right, so I'm here with Denise once again in Occupy Flint. Uh, we've been working really hard today, uh, finishing up the structure here that everybody's going to be staying in. So, um, so anyway, um, apologize for the brief delay there. But uh, so, uh, Denise, um, how'd you? But uh, basically, the question I asked you earlier: um, at what point in your life did you decide to go from being just someone who was part of the world to someone who was working to make it better? Um, when I was 16, I started volunteering with people that were severely mentally and physically impaired. So when I was 16, I've worked with people with disabilities ever since then. Um, I've always spoke out for, uh, gay rights and, um, spoken out against abuse. When, um, Occupy started, I thought, awesome, cool. Um, I didn't do much until the police brutality started getting extreme, uh, at which point I started coming down here because I pretty much don't care what you're saying. You should have the right to say it. That's a really good point. Um, And the thing about the whole free speech thing is, you know, I tell people this, especially in independent media like I'm doing, it's like people be like, so why do you promote shows from, you know, a point of view that aren't the same as yours? I'm like, because independent media needs to stick together even if we don't agree. I'd still, if if there's going to be a a person speaking from the extreme right, I'd rather it was an independent person rather than some corporate shill whore who's told what to say. So um, now... So you said, like, basically when you were 16, was there any kind of specific thing that happened, or maybe was it your parents? Um, We had family friends my whole childhood that one of their daughters was mentally impaired, 
and she lived at home, and um, I thought that she deserved quality education, so that's why I started going into it. Um, and for the last 16 years, I've worked for a woman with a spinal cord injury, off and on. Um, I'm pretty much ready for a change, but um, and I go to school for like I was saying, for occupational therapy, but uh, I believe I'm changing tack, so. Well, yeah, we were talking a little bit about that. What what is the uh, what was the um, economic situation like during your childhood? My parents um, were probably considered upper middle class and probably still would be considered upper middle class. Um, I have one brother who's younger than me, and um, my dad had his own construction business, and my dad had lots and lots of toys, cars, motorcycles, anything antique. And uh, I felt from a very young age that he put money above people, and so I've pretty much rebelled against that my whole life. Now, was there an influence perhaps, like, you know, any like kind of person that inspired you to realize that that behavior was incorrect? Um, my mom is a very um, kind person and a very open, non-judgmental person, so I grew up in a household of both. It's actually identical to my childhood. Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> to the letter. My father was like a 50s father-knows-best, children-are-to-be-seen-and-not-heard kind of guy, and my mother was a 60s free-thinking uh, person and that pretty much their marriage was doomed because of the issue of how they felt children should be raised was you know, definitely not by any means on the same wavelength. Um, so um, it's interesting then that that means that you've you've been able to see what life is like from that other side then because of your financial background and that you still were able to come to see you know the benefits for other people and. You know, your mom was in a position then to inspire you to do that, um, but it also continues to to break the nonsense that we keep hearing that supposedly everybody involved in the Occupy movement is just some lazy, uneducated you know person who doesn't know the value of work or just needs to find a job or whatever other crap. So um, now you were you were talking about obviously uh, your education. How did you pay for your education? Um, when I went to school, when I first graduated from high school. My parents paid for my education um, and then uh, kept threatening to stop paying for my education So, because uh, I have always been the black sheep of the family. Mm -hmm. So I started working at group homes when I was at Central at CMU and um, loved it. And then I ended up moving to Colorado and not finishing school. So then about 10 years ago, I put myself through three years of massage school, of which I paid all of that myself. Um, and then I've been in school for two years. <coughs> Excuse me. Two years now. Um, and I get a partial Pell Grant. I get student loans. Um, I work. I have three children. I do not get child support. Um yeah. So in other words, you're working your little ta your tail off. You're not in any fashion lazy. You're educated. You're intelligent, and you still support Occupy Flint. So um, now, uh, 
as far as like your personal political views or ideologies that you favor, what would you like if you had to label it, call yourself? Um, actually, it's interesting because that has probably shifted in the last month or so. I have, uh, I, um, I've known that the world is a screwed up place since I was a little kid. Uh, I had a very abusive childhood, so um, I have never fit in with any kind of norm. So, uh, so I have. We don't watch TV at my house and haven't most of my children's life. Uh, uh, I don't watch the news. I don't listen to the radio. Um, I stopped during Katrina because it was too heart-wrenching. Um, so I have been, the last month and a half, I've been playing catch-up of trying to figure out what on earth is going on in the world because I've been in my little hidey hole. Because I have children, so I figured that uh, the best the best change I could make in the world at that point um, was teaching my children to be kind and to be strong and to be um, independent thinkers. But I've come to realize that that is not enough. So, um, so now I'm working very hard on educating myself, and I'm down here as often as I can be, helping and learning. Well, let me first of all say that's amazing, and I admire you for that. Um, that's actually very compelling, so um, keep it up. <laughs> uh, I make a lot of decisions like that. Like uh, I don't allow my children to watch advertising um, of any form ever, and uh, I notice immediately the difference in their values as compared to other children. I like, for example, I have no problem buying, you know, spending a little extra money on toys, like because I love to buy toys for my kids, but taking my children to a store is entirely different than watching other people, mom, I want this, I want that, you know, because they've been so brainwashed, you know, by what's on TV to want this or to want that. And I can literally dazzle them with dollar store toys if I want to. You know, I will still buy them something else, but it, I think what I like about it is I get to take them to the store and watch as they make those choices based on what they like, you know, and I don't think enough parents understand that. Well, it my daughter, and I'm trying to think of what year, maybe her 10th or 11th birthday. She's 13 now. And I have, since I was in high school, shopped secondhand clothing, always, always. Mm-hmm. And um, and so my kids all wear secondhand clothes as well. Uh, my boys get hand-me-downs. I've never had to buy clothes for my boys. And, so, and then we pass them on. And... Uh, and my daughter, her one birthday, I think it was 10, she ended up getting a lot of money. She didn't get gifts. She got money from everybody for her birthday. And so she wanted to go to, like, Old Navy and brand name big stores, and it was her money. And I was like, okay, go right ahead, and uh, I'll take you wherever you want to go. So she quickly learned that, oh, because we also went to the used bookstore, because we always go to the used bookstore. So And she wanted to go to Borders. So we did some shopping secondhand and some shopping not secondhand, and the amount of stuff she was able to get comparatively was a wake up to her. You know that we had I've done that forever, and then she got to see why one of the reasons why I do that. <laughs> so, so. Well, no, and that's that's great. And I, we actually did a radio show once on that topic of why to homeschool, and it actually started because. 
Um, like, if it weren't for the fact that I met my my daughter's kindergarten teacher and happened to really like her, I probably would have homeschooled. And um, like, I had a picture on my Facebook of uh, her getting on the bus for the first time, and that sparked because I have activist friends and non-activist friends, and they had a little bit of a debate about, well, you have to send your child to public school, or they'll never learn how to, you know, socially adjust and all of that. So I did a radio show about, well, what I learned in school was that unless you're wearing guest jeans instead of Wrangler jeans, you're not a suitable human being, and you're lesser than this other kid who has these, this pair of jeans that the only functional difference is is a label that's like, you know, two inches by two inches. And, you know, I learned that if you don't wear these kinds of shoes, then you're not as good as this kid is who does. And um, those are all kinds of social adjustments that I would just rather my child didn't have. Right. I luckily I'm in um I'm in a different kind of community cuz I I come to Occupy Flint um cuz I lived in Flint for several years and I grew up in Flushing outside of Flint, but now I live in New Lothrop, which is a tiny little village. It's a farming village, but it's incredibly small. And so in the school system is really good, but they're also um it's a different vibe than you get at most public schools, and um, we moved out there about five years ago, I guess, almost six years ago, and uh, the first homecoming game we went to, there were no high school cheerleaders, and so we figured they were all in the homecoming court or whatever, and so we finally asked somebody, because it was just odd, and yeah, no, they just don't have cheerleaders. Nobody wanted to do it, so the high school doesn't have cheerleaders. There's so it's less um, clicky than a lot of schools, and it's um, like the drama program includes kids from kindergarten on up, and they're musical. Anybody that wants to be a part of it is allowed to be a part of it. Um, they had a kid for a couple of years that had a speech impediment that always had a speaking part. Um, the director is phenomenal, and their football team is like undefeated almost every year and they have they're big on odyssey of the mind um stuff too so I, i'm fortunate that um the community i live in has a very good school system and it has a lot of parental involvement and um in the kids there isn't there isn't the um i don't think there's the need to conform as much out there as kids have it other places there's still some there's still some for sure and my daughter does feel uh somewhat out of the loop because we don't have tv and i'm not um holidays i'm not Yay. big uh Yay. big store-bought gifts i do a lot of homemade gifts and that kind of stuff so uh she's always a little bit out of the loop but I tell her that uh, at least I'm doing things the way I think they should be done. I'm doing what I think is right. So. Well, and because of that, though, you have a lot more freedom. You know, you're not controlled by what, you know, society would, quote-unquote, expect of you. Like, uh, at the beginning of the broadcast I was doing here, I was talking about the way the holidays have kind of become this thing that people are enslaved to. It's like, 
you know, you're supposed to have this joyous occasion where you're gathering, but you see these families, they get so angry and stressed if everything doesn't go just right, and it ends up being more like a performance. <laughs> like, you know, the the mom of the house is the director of the Christmas party, and if it doesn't all go exactly right, then I'm going to flip out. And, you know, it just it's, it's amazing how many uh, artificial constructs we have in our society you know that uh, where there's expectations that are made of us that you know about things that are even just supposed to be an expression of joy or togetherness um and it's funny actually it's the reason why um I don't uh I don't really participate in a lot of that stuff because it just it's feel it all feels so fake you know it's um like it, I just got back from a Thanksgiving party that I went to cuz my friend didn't want to go by himself cuz he doesn't get along with his family ironically and I just spent the whole time remembering what it was like to think that the football game was something worthy of being angry about as opposed to the war in Iraq or something with substance and, you know, the uh, just the state of... Um, the uh, state of the... Like, just the things that people prioritize, I guess would be the way to put it. And the, the attitude that families have um, as opposed to... Um, basically, I guess it's kind of like family became a thing of obligation, and it just seems to put you in a position where it seems like they feel entitled that they can mistreat you. You know, <laughs> it's like that's it's like that's what family is now because family units don't work together really. I mean, they don't they don't they don't have farms together. They don't you know it's not a really a communal living thing. It's just a situation where you you have these people that can pass judgment on you and kind of you know push you in ways that they want you to be, you know, you being, of course, from an abusive home, I'm sure you know exactly what you mean, and I was the same for me, so, um, now, let me back to the Occupy stuff here, uh, can you share with me a memory or maybe an impression or something about the Occupy movement that, you know, something that, you know, if you were asked, like, say, 20 years from now by your, you know, your, your grandkids or something, you know, what would you tell them? What was the most memorable? Yes. I would say the coming together of all the different people. I think it's been fascinating to be up here and to have conversations with different people, which has sparked conversations that I'm having online with um, trying to purposely talk to conservative friends and liberal friends and trying to um, I'm trying to find the middle ground because I think very soon we all need to unite. And so... I'm trying to find the places we can come together to try to uh, unite people, but but I would say definitely it's the people. It's the people. It's what it's about, and uh, I, I find it fascinating talking to everybody and having having everybody be heard. Right, and it's a good thing that this is an audio <laughs> sto- show because the lights just went out here at Occupy Flint. Um, uh, I think that was just a, a show-stopping moment. Now, <laughs> but I agree with you about the the people thing, and in particularly about the the melding pot issue. Um, like, I know I've been to situations where there was, you know, people. There were no divisions of race officially, but there was still a feeling of it. Like, you know, and in the Occupy movement, the race issue seems to be completely colorblind. Like, it just doesn't come up, doesn't occur to you. You don't even think about it. You know, in it's just like completely purged. I mean, have you shared that experience? Yeah, I think so. Although I have I have family that's Japanese, I have family that's black. So 
I'm pretty used to working with different uh, with different cultures, but it is definitely everybody. There isn't there's nothing that feels segregated about it at all. Everybody's talking to everybody. Everybody's pitching in and working together. Yeah. It has been every time I've been here. So. Now, what do you uh, um, what do you see as far as the future for the Occupy movement in general? Do you, do you see this continuing to grow and perhaps re- you know realizing real change? I sure hope so. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm here. I I would like to uh, I would like it to have real change because I think that there are so many. The corruption is so pervasive throughout our system, both or more than both, the government, the big corporations, the pharmaceutical companies, the insurance companies, there's 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 corruption everywhere and in the ways that things are set up don't protect against that. <laughs> they protect uh protect in quotes us by uh taking away our rights right and left, but uh but from whom we actually need protection we don't really get it so right i mean all the the gun regulations never seem to keep the guns out of the hands of people who want to hurt us Um, yeah and and even when i considered myself liberal which i don't think i i think it depends on the issue what i'm considered these days and i'm fine with not having a label because i think it depends on the issue but um, even even when I was very liberal, I never had a problem with people having guns or trying to restrict gun use because because I think regardless of what your laws are, criminals are going to have guns. They'll find a way to get guns. So if the people that are law-abiding cannot get guns, then that is just setting up the society for all kinds of bad things. You know, there's you can't you can't create so many gun laws that that people who who should have guns are not allowed to. Right. Well, you ever notice? Um, I think that was something we were talking about outside before we did this was the uh, the right-left paradigm and how it seems like they divide up all the things that people would want. Like, because I'm a liberal, I must automatically also be for gun control. You know, because I'm a conservative, I must automatically be against health care. You know, it seems like they stack it so that you you have to feel like you can only have one or the other. That's one of the reasons why I stayed an independent for so long was the fact that, you know, it's uh, actually George Washington in his farewell address pointed out he was very wary of the party system because he was afraid that people would start arguing over, well, uh, you know, I have to argue for the Democrats or the Republicans rather than for the Americans, you know, and um, I I think that it's an interesting paradigm to keep us eternally divided. Um, There's a picture on my website or actually on my Facebook where you have like this uh, Uncle Sam and he's got a a puppet of a, you know, the uh, elephant on one side and then the donkey on the other and it says, I want you to endlessly fight while I hold the power, you know. So, I mean, um, and I guess so as far as like... um, that is concerned, you know, when it comes to you as a person, you know, do you find yourself pulling from the right, from the left, from whatever you, you know, you yourself agree with? Do you think you have a combination of things or would you, or would you still be able to subscribe to one label or the other? I don't know that I can subscribe to one label or the other. I find um, right now I'm very drawn to the constitutionalist uh I don't I but I don't know where um 
social issues. I don't know where I stand yet on how to how to ensure that the people that need help get help. So that's um, so I'm still wrapping my head around that because um, I'm still doing a lot of research. But I I agree with the right left paradigm and the the trying to divide us because I think if you go to a situation or an issue such as abortion that I think that probably most Americans, regardless of which side they speak out for, um, would hope that abortion is performed as uh, as little as possible and that it's safe. You know, I, there's nobody there's nobody that advocates um, it being used as birth control or it being used haphazardly or it being used... Um, in any kind of manner like that, you know, I, I'm pro-choice because I think that there are situations in which it's probably the best choice. Um, I don't, uh, but I think they divide us. They, they make you take one stance or the other, and I don't necessarily think it's a one stance or the other. I think there should, you know, I think there, that's one issue that people could actually come together if people just drop the my side my side, my side thing. Well, we walk, we run into that quite a bit, actually, is that there, I have friends, for example, who would really like to see the Tea Party um, and the Occupy movement be able to put aside their differences along up the lines of the things that they do agree on. Uh, like Ron Paul, for example, suggested, you know, to Occupy, it was like, well, why don't we work on ending the Fed, ending the Federal Reserve? Um, because that's something that both sides can agree on. Right. And it's it's certainly in the the interest of any elite small group of people that's trying to control us to have us forever fighting over other things that at the end of the day you know the healthcare issue is important is it as important as the war i don't really think it is but we can't stop fighting about the healthcare issue and we're talking about that instead of the war or instead of so many other uh, issues that are really hurting a lot of people um, and it's, it's like it paralyzes us, you know, and, it, and the media plays into that because the media um, basically keeps us focused on stupid, unimportant things rather than the real issues. Um, and so I guess uh, now you said you don't watch TV at all, and I can understand that. Uh, I myself, um, I still own a television, but I hook it up to a computer and I just put on what I want to watch. You know, I'm very selective and I control that from that aspect. I mean, do you, I guess, do you, what have you replaced it with? Do you read a lot of books? Um, I do read a lot of books. I work and have three children and go to school, so my time is limited um, for just free time. I like to read, but I haven't been reading for enjoyment a whole lot. Um, I do read a lot. I I enjoy it. I also, uh, I hang out with my friends. I knit. I take pictures. I garden. Um, I sit outside a lot. We spend a lot of time outside, a lot, a lot of time outside. Um, I don't miss TV, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, that's yeah, I can totally understand that. But I guess then that means that, you know, your news is kind of coming from just word of mouth. Um, yeah, I have, I have an... I have my best friend actually is agoraphobic and never leaves her house and watches the news nonstop. So um, she fills me in <laughs> on what I need to know. Um, now, in the last month and a half, I have been um, I have 
been nonstop trying to get my hands on news, but I have not been going through any of the commercial media outlets. I've been going through YouTube. I've been going through Infowars. I've been um, uh, just unraveling threads pretty much. When I watch something and it sparks a question in my head, then I follow that to try to answer that question. So um, it's kind of been fun. <laughs> well, that's what we call critical analytical thinking. So that's what sets us apart, actually, in a lot of ways. So I want to thank you, Denise, for um, taking some time out of your evening. Um, this has been excellent. Um, and uh, thank you for participating, and maybe hopefully you can start getting some of your news from V Radio. Right on. Thank you. I will check it out. All right. Thanks again. Is that an audio recorder great? <laughs> yeah. You're full of electronics. And uh, so uh, they, uh, they, um, I slid this paper through the window, and it said, uh, reason for appearance, I was present observing during the incident, and the name I wrote, known as J, with the signature X. Slider, give me a receipt. Cool. I have the receipt. I gave you that paper. That's my signature. And this is, you know, I'm going to enter this uh, trial with uh, this document, you know, and any other factual information or testimony I have. And so uh, we had gone to a pretrial conference where you have a chance to make amends with the victim. That doesn't work, so you go in front of a judge, and he says, okay, you guys didn't kiss and make up. Let's set this forward for another date. And uh, I do that a few times, and then you go into, uh, like, a hearing, uh, a trial. And uh, so we're at one of the pretrial conferences, and uh, we go through the whole thing, and they bat her shit down and, like, basically, like, railroad her. And uh, so we walk out of there, and I'm at the clerk's desk getting papers. I had paid for my copies, and uh, this, this bailiff comes running out, and he's like, uh, he says, uh, he says, they, they, they want to talk to you in there. They, 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 they're calling me. The judge wants to talk to you, you know? And I said, I said, you know, and he's standing there, and he's like, I'm coming with him, you know? And I said, she has my property through the window. And the lady's standing behind the clerk's desk like, oh, God. And she had like 20 more papers to get for me, you know, certified copies and stamps and notary signatures and shit. And so um, I said, she has my property, so the bailiff now can't move to separate me from my property. Right. And uh, so and they have it, you know. She has to give it to me. I paid for it. And uh, so I stand there for like five minutes while she does my thing, and the bailiff's just like... Mm-hmm. He's like trying to like lean away and like start walking and see if I'll follow. And I'm like, no, I'm waiting for my papers, you know. And so they give me my papers and uh, we go with the bailiff into the room and it goes clack, dude. They slap these big doors and frickin' bolt them sons of bitches and stand two guards on the inside, you know. So we're locked in this courtroom with just uh, a couple of bailiffs and a couple of crooked uh, city clerks and judges, you know, or a judge. And uh, he says, uh, ma'am. He says, do you have a recorder in here? And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I put it right on the podium as soon as I started talking to you. See, why do you think I'm full of electronics? It comes in handy. Right, right. And so I know I have the same one. This is the one that we recorded the cops with. And anyway, uh, so, uh, and so, uh, he says, uh, he says, ma'am, do you have a recorder in here? She says, yeah, I put it on the podium right when I started talking to you. He says, well, uh, well, I didn't see it. He says, you, you can't have that in here, you know. And she says, well, it's my right to have a, you know, record here. He says, no, it is not your right. You know, he has this big brow-beating, back-and-forth conversation with her, makes her agree not to bring the audio recorder in, but I didn't agree I wouldn't bring it in. And so he says, and what is this? He says, you guys you guys are going to get hurt in here. He's like, you guys got holsters? He's like, what is the deal with this? You know, you guys have holsters? And he says, well, what is this, this? 
known as Jay. He's like slapping this paper around, you know. He says, who is known as Jay? And so I like stand up and I walk through the frickin' little uh, barrister thing or whatever you call it, the bar. And uh, I said, I am known as Jay. And he says, uh, what, is, what is this? What is this? Uh, he says, you know, uh, are you an attorney? I said, no, I'm not an attorney. He says, well, when I see one of these forms, I think you're an attorney. That's not what it says. It doesn't say attorney form. It says special appearance form, right. you know. And so, anyways, we had filed, what happened was we had filed a paper that was a media notice saying that we're going to take electronic recording of the hearing that we were going to have on our Jeep being parked on our driveway without a state licensed motor vehicle tag, you know, and so, uh, which is my automobile, not their motor vehicle, and they said it was an unregistered motor vehicle, which is a misnomer, it doesn't exist. Unregistered motor vehicle doesn't exist, a motor vehicle is a registered automobile. So, anyways, um, yeah, and, uh, yes, and so, uh, you know, they wanted to push this issue, and we said, we're going to, okay, we'll meet you in court, and we'll bring a video recorder to put up on YouTube. And uh, they uh, declined by arresting her off of the doorstep of a magistrate and taking her, absconding with her, abducting her uh, under threat of, uh, you know, with arms to take her to a police station to shackle her to a bench and mugshot and fingerprint her, scare the shit out of her, tell her she's going downtown to the Genesee County Jail for a misdemeanor charge, which is absolutely cannot do. And, uh, um... You know, without a trial or anything, dude, you're going to jail. Hey, do they got enough room in the jail tonight? As they're like driving around, we've got it all on audio recording. They're like, look, she's got a, she's got a CPL, and the other guy's like, not anymore. <laughs> they're all like, so this is, oh yeah, dude, they're totally, dude, totally unprofessional, and we can fucking get them, dude, because they're not, yeah, oh yeah, they're like, <laughs> like, you know, yes, dude, like, oh, she's got a CPL. The one says, and the other guy's like, not anymore. You can hear it on the fucking audio recording, you know? Yeah, dude. They're fucking bastards. And so what they did is they cited her on a, a ordinance, a Flushing City ordinance, which is knife in excess of three and a half inches. So we have this meeting with the, their uh, city attorney where I sit down with them and I said, look, I'm watching you guys, and if I catch you guys acting out of regulation or doing anything unlawful here, I'm going to press charges. I said, who's the victim? He says, it's society. So I write down society. I said, who signed the uh, the bond to hold her over for trial? He says, uh, that's uh, Magistrate so-and-so. I write his name down. I said, okay, uh, who who uh, requested the bond? He says, oh, that's Mr. Henneke, the city attorney. I'm like, okay, write his name down. And, uh, and I told the dude, basically, I'm watching him, and he has a duty. And he says, don't you tell me about my duty. You know, he gets all loud on me. And so that, uh, that meeting didn't go anywhere, you know. And so I leave there, and they actually wanted what they did is they tried to coerce me into giving them my name, which I gave him, because, you know, we're going to have business here. He said his purpose for having my name was to verify my witness testimony, which I was there to vindicate my woman, so anything I can do to uh, verify my witness testimony is I'm interested in. And uh, so he can have my name strictly for the purpose of verifying my witness testimony, just like that, into the record. And uh, uh, so we do it like that. And... Uh, he says, no, 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 he says, I don't want any, because the judge already accepted my given name, this is a couple of days later, and he says, no, 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 he says, I don't want any of that given name crap. He says, what name would you give if a cop asked you, and he's pointing at the cop that arrested my woman, and I said, I'd tell him my name is Jason Michael, and uh, so uh, exactly the name I gave you, and uh, for business purposes, strictly for verifying my witness testimony, and uh, not to be used outside of that. And so he tried the mistering, and I freaking batted down the mistering and told him, you're not going to call me mister, you'll be offending me. And he says, well, so what do you want me to call you? And I said, Jason Michael will work for business purposes, you son of a bitch, that's the third time. You know, you get three strikes, dude. 
And uh, yeah, yeah, and he knows better. Attorneys know better, dude. They won't push the issue because if you tell him, you notify him. Look, you're offending me by speaking to me this way. It's a cease and desist order, you know. And so um, he has people's rights to protect because he's acting publicly as a as a city official, uh, court officer actually. And so um, we have this meeting, and then uh, you know there's like various meetings that went you know pretty much south on every account, and so they had gotten my name from, you know, the judge, they had gotten my name there, now when we're at the actual hearing, which was a three-day jury trial, um, they, uh, they, uh, tried to get my name again, except this time they arrested me with, like, ten sheriff's de deputies downtown in the court building, and they had, like, one of the cops that was, that arrested my wife was standing there, and I'd been going through security over and over and over again with my belt with a holster in it. It's just... You know, not an offensive item, man. It's a piece of my daily attire. I told them, and uh, they're all the rage this year. You yeah. know, they've they've got special ones. You know, from Gucci and all that. You know, holsters are the sex thing now. Right, right. And so, simply a piece of my daily attire, an unoffensive, uh, you know, envelope for a for a firearm that doesn't contain a firearm because the sign on the door says absolutely no firearms allowed, and you agree to the legal notice as far as I understand when you cross the sign. No shirt, no shoes, no service. And so, um, uh, the sign on the uh, door to the city of Flushing courthouse there actually says absolutely no firearms. It doesn't say, like the rest of the court buildings say absolutely no weapons, and it's got a bunch of pictures of knives and nunchucks and frickin' brass knuckles and guns. You know, a big pile of frickin' weapons, you know? <laughs> and they're everywhere. And so that sign means no weapons. So if you have something that's recognized as a weapon, don't bring it. But a pocket knife in the state of Michigan is not recognized as a weapon, unless it's used unlawfully. And or if it is like a, a non-folding stabbing instrument or a double-edged knife. Okay, and so there is no, like, restriction on knife length that I know of other than the city ordinance that they have. What we proved in the court case is that we are not society... So we could not commit a crime against ourselves. And by that I mean we are not flushing society. We do not have a chance to vote on their ordinances. We do not live under their ordinances. We do not profit from their ordinances. We have no municipal concern with their ordinances other than uh, keeping the peace. Uh, which would be like, you know, don't park your car on my kid's feet. And so, uh, you know, these things are very simple. And so I can't remember where I'm going with that, but... Well, give me the details of that crazy arrest that you went through in the courtroom. Oh, yeah, there you go. And so it wasn't in the courtroom. It was out in the lobby in the security area. And he says, uh, he says I'd been through security over and over and over again with a holster. And then, like, about the 30th time over three months, they finally said, well, we have a new rule after 9-11. Only uh, officers on duty can even have a holster in here. And so I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? And she's like, no, I'm serious. And she just got off the phone, so they're, like, telling her to say this. You know, she's like, blah, 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 to me. And she doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about. And so I'm like, all right, you know, I said, we can do this. So I stick my holster in my locker. And so they saw me put it in my locker, and they'd been informing each other on me, and all this stuff's stacking up, except it's, like, so far back in real time that I'm, like, freaking caught off guard by it myself because it doesn't relate anymore. And so... uh I had gone to lunch and taken the holster then out to the car, and this is at the end of the day, about 3 o'clock. And so I'm going through security. I go through the metal detector. All my shit is on the x-ray machine. I grab my stuff off the x-ray belt, start to put my holster back on. Or no, actually, I didn't have the holster. I, just, I made a big show of putting this holster back on my belt and everything because they jerked my belt out of my pants every time. And uh, cause they, like when we came in there, I've been in there hundreds of times, man, and they have, like... Uh, 
the setting, I don't know if you guys know this, but the setting on uh, your uh, metal detector can be set to, like, pick up a paper clip or, uh, you know, like, a cannonball. And so, you know, they are supposed to... What is it? Oh, yeah. Um, to to filter, you know, weapons from, from entering the court. And so uh, the thing is, they weren't doing that. They had a jack to the nines, man. Like, this tiniest little eyelet on my boot was setting these things off. On purpose, I believe. And so, um, I go through the security check, I get through the x-ray, I get through the metal detector, I'm grabbing my stuff off the belt, and one of the cops that arrested my wife and was involved in the hearing, he was a witness on their side, leans forward to the security officer who I had had the discussion with about the holster earlier and says, you better check him really well, he had a holster in here earlier, and she goes, stand back there! You know, and I'm like, are you kidding me? She's like, stand back there! And I'm like, okay. So I stand back there. She's like, take off your boots. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about, dude? I said, look, I've already passed through security. She's like, I mean it. You're going to take off your boots. And there's like 10 cops filing down the thing with their truncheons. You know, they got like their hands on their tasers and they're marching like chow, 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 out of this little freaking uh, guard room, you know. The stormtroopers were coming to they get were you. Stormtrooping, you know. They didn't know it. And I'm sure they probably <laughs> don't even realize it, but they were stormtrooping. And, uh,. Some of them might even get off on it. A couple of them did, but most of them, I think, just were, like, useful idiots. And so um, they uh, they come down the hallway. They surround me, and she says, take off your shoes. So I take off my shoes, and I throw my notebook onto the floor so I can, you know, I've got, like, $20 pair of wool socks on, and I don't want to step in this athlete's foot schoos that's, like, all over the floor, you know. And so I uh, throw my notebook down, step onto the notebook, and she uh, sees me standing on the notebook, and she points two feet over on the floor and says, stand right there! You know, so I'm like, all right, you know, so I stand right there. And they're questioning me. This guy comes out with a CB and a suit jacket, like a leisure suit jacket, you know, and he's waving the CB around to everybody, and there he's obviously under his control. And he comes over and he says, he says, uh, do you have a gun in here? I said, no, I don't have any weapons. He says, uh, do you have a holster in here? I said, I don't have anything to say about that. He says, where is the holster? I said, I don't have anything to say about that. And some other guy says, it's in his locker. And, uh... So he says, where's the key to this locker? Give me the key to this locker. I said, you guys have it over there. He says, get me the key. You know, he's got his hand in the air, and he's just waiting for the key. So I get him the key, and they open my locker, and it's like my water jug. So they don't let us have water in the uh, court uh, or the court waiting room. They allow the attorneys and uh, clerks to drink their coffee and have beverages, but they don't allow the public to actually even have water in there. So you got to, like, pay for a locker, go out to your locker, get a drink, or go buy one of their concessions and drink it and throw it away or store it in a locker. And so um, I had paid for the locker fare. They searched my locker. They never gave me back my key, so actually they stole my locker fare from me. It's only 25 cents, but it is larceny. It is, uh, uh, you know, people do go to, you know, like 93-day jail time for stealing a pack of Big Red bubblegum when it was a quarter a pack. And so, um, Well, not to mention, I mean, searching your locker without a warrant should be illegal, well, too. They, you know, he gave this big explanation. He says, that's our property. We can look in there. You know, give me that. And actually, I'd leased it mm. by paying for the locker right, key. Right. But I'm sure there's some notice around there that says uh, lockers are subject to search, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I don't care. Again, there is that issue. Because, I mean, you didn't have an evil holster in there that might have hurt somebody, so you just had water. Right, I just had water, so it's this this (laughs) jug of water is in there. Hey, you can drown somebody in a teaspoon. Right, right. 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 And see, uh, so he says, uh, he says, um, he says, do you got ID? I said, nope. And he goes, you don't got ID? And his face is like turning beet red, because they need the ID, and I don't have it. And so he says, uh, he says, what's your name? And I said, uh, my name is Jason Michael. He says, what is that, your first name, your last name? I said, no, that's my name. 
He says, look, you're going to have to give us your name. I said, what do you want, my legal name or my lawful name? He says, we want your legal name. I said, I don't have one. He says, we want your lawful name. I said, I've given it to you. And so they're like going through this whole bit. And they're like, stand over there. This woman puts her finger up high on my arm. This little burly chick, mean as hell, dude. She puts her finger up high on my shoulder like this, and she just lays into me and pushes like as hard as... I mean, she's just leaning into it. And I had heard about this. What happens is if I push you, mm-hmm. you automatically generally will lean toward me if I give you a shove. And so if I were to push against you and then pull my hand back, all the camera uh, sees is you going... <laughs> and falling, sorry, falling <laughs> on me. And so they do this all the time in front of cameras, and I, I, it's hearsay. I've heard about it. But this bitch actually fucking tried to do that shit to me. She put her finger high on my shoulder and just went, oh, and pushed me. And I just, like, totally was standing there. As soon as I felt her pressure on my thing, she's like, stand over there. I let this leg go totally limp and went, oop, and fell away one full step out of her reach, you know. And so she can't push me anymore. And what she, I believe, had attempted to do is give me a shove and do one of them freaking, you know, get my ass beat by ten sheriff's deputies with the, in full view of the camera and have it look like I freaking assaulted this bitch. And so, um... They uh, they said, uh, stand over there. And uh, so I stand over there, and they're like, turn around and face the wall. So I turn around and face the wall. They got me, like, with my nose on the wall like this, and they're standing in the semicircle behind me. And they're like, uh, they said, uh, he says, uh, what's, he says, look, if we can't find out who you are, we're going to take you downtown and fingerprint you, you know. And so I said, uh, am I under arrest? And nobody says anything, and I'm like, am I free to go? And they're all like, no, same bit, just like before, dude. So it's like practice every time, you know, because I know exactly how to make them jump through these hoops. Because they do it themselves, basically, they're trained. And so um, I said, uh, he he says, uh, oh, man, what did they do? They said, turn around and face the wall. So I turn around and face the wall, and the sheriff's deputy leans in. And during this whole thing, every time they would see me coming down the hallway, this cop would, like, he'd be standing there, you know, like with his other cop buddies. And I'd come walking this way, and he'd go. <laughs> Got the the big tactical gunslinger you know, oh, yeah. stance. And he, or he'd do this. He'd go. He's got his hand on his pistol. Yeah, like you know, me from like taking. His like you can you can see the tumbleweeds, you know, flying behind him, and you know hear the breeze. Hearing his weapon from me is what he was doing. He was he was going. He was like you know, and so uh, it was like totally this like unre you know display of bullshit and. um... So uh, they got me with my nose against the wall. Well, meanwhile, they're photographing and searching my documents. They don't have a right or a warrant to do this either, but they like really need to find out what the fuck we're going to do to them when I get in there, which was totally perjure the shit out of three Flushing City PD uh, officers where they tried to lie so bad I wrote uh, 40 questions for each of them, and I don't care who you are, dude. 40 questions for each of you, dude, and I'll find out you know, like what happened, especially if I know exactly what happened because I was there. And so we'll have other people hear what happened if you answer all 40 of my questions. Or don't answer some right. of the questions, you know. And so it looked bad. They looked so horrible, dude. It was like no frickin' jury in the land would ever believe these numbskulls. And you said they were basically listening outside the door so that they could kind of compare notes to... Yeah, right, but you, but right. you changed the uh, order of the questions yeah, to be yeah. sure that they couldn't get a grasp on that. Yeah, it was too long of a thing, and they were too out of order, and they were too specialized per the individual. You know, it wasn't broad-spectrum uh, dragnetting. It was really focused, uh, uh, pointed questions at each individual, you know, such as, were you wearing body armor? And, uh, you know, uh, are you aware of a requirement to identify yourself when officially contacting an individual? Are you aware of a requirement to cite and release or deliver directly to the magistrate an individual on arrest? 
you know, stuff like this where when they answer it, some of them answered uh, no, no, I'm not aware of that. Well, if they're not aware of that, it shows negligence, and it can be criminal negligence because it is absolutely their duty. They have absolutely no excuse for ignorance of the law, which is the code of criminal procedure in this case. And so, um, yeah, and they've got me out in the hallway. They've got me against the wall. They're searching my documents. They've got me stand, you know, ruining my socks, exposing me to biohazard. They've got um, all of this stuff going on, and they're being demeaning. And they're, this guy leans into me, and he says, look, don't you know that... Uh, the militia is supposed to obey the authority of the sheriff's department. I looked at him and I said, I never said I was militia. And he says, you got a right to remain silent. You better use it. And that's when I said, am I under arrest? And they didn't, you know, they didn't say anything. And so they held me up forever. And then it's like built up to this crescendo where they're like, you're going to jail. You're going to jail. You're going to jail. And then they're like, get out of here, you know, because they couldn't take me to jail on anything. And so uh, this like, just, like had this huge build up and then broke away. And they're like, you better get your stuff and get out of here. They're saying like through their teeth, dude. And, uh... Because so, uh, we might falsely arrest you again and make you stand on your notebook and then make you get off your notebook. You, you better watch out. Right, right. They got they know how to do it. And so uh, <laughs> it was fun because I can't tell you how many times I've been at the court building and watched them just like totally freaking railroad people in there and just like yell at them from two sides like, come on, what do you want to do? You want to start a fight in here? You want trouble? You came to the right place. You know, just like bouncing some dude out of there, you know. And like I'm like, Jesus Christ, dude. This guy like sat down at a computer and went, blah, 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 and like mumbled some shit and they want to beat his ass. You know? Now you went in there and you told the judge that you had just been unlawfully arrested and you considered it a, a violation or basically a, violation obstructing a you know, well and obstructing a court proceeding or something to that effect. Yeah, yeah, uh, interfering with uh, an official proceeding that causes a uh, delay or withholding of a document or with witness testimony at an official proceeding is a uh, is a violation under U.S. code. It's like a, a ten-year maximum, I think, or a five-year maximum, something like that. And so he says, um, this all builds up, they let me go. Well, one of the officers that was there, one of the bailiffs, they were trying to get my name, and this uh, this bailiff leans in, and he says, his last name is such and such. And he says, is that your last name? I said, I don't have anything to say about that. And so they couldn't get that out of me. And uh, so what they wanted to do is coerce me into giving them, uh, identifying myself as a legal entity, so that they can then use it in court to say that I had given them a false name. And it's not going to work. And so uh, they held me up. I, they had been calling me to the stand for 15 minutes or more through this whole thing. This is where they're interfering with an official proceeding, causing the influence, delay, or withholding of a, a witness, testimony, or document at an official proceeding charge comes in because it fits totally that uh, definition. And so he says, um, they say, get out of here. And so the same bailiff that said that over the guy's shoulder, his last name is such and such, they had taken, like, a facial recognition scan of me or something and had, like, a uh, a way to find out who they thought I was. And uh, so they had been calling me to the stand for about 15 or 20 minutes, and I get into the little waiting room I was sitting in, and I put my shoes back together. I had my insoles out, my shoelaces all out. And so I put all that stuff back together, and I'm halfway done, and the bailiff comes in, and he says, they're, they're, they're waiting for you in there. And I was like, you're going to give me a minute to fix myself, right? And he just looks at me, and he's, like, trying to do the shifty walk thing, and I'm just, like, tying my shoes. And so uh, I walk into the court. It's absolutely silent in there. And I say, hey, you can take the stand, you know. So I go, like, toward the stand, and I realize I need to say something first. So I veered off, and I go right up to the judge's little uh, high-rise. And I'm like, uh, I said, um, which he shouldn't be doing, uh, I don't believe. And, uh, like, sitting all high and mighty up there is not acceptable here, but people have, like, allowed it. And so uh, so they do it. And uh, he says... Um, 
He says, you can take the stand. So I veer over to the judge's uh, booth and I said, look, I've just been uh, unlawfully arrested uh, on uh, the statements that were made by Officer Koloski here. I said, uh, you know, I, I don't remember what I said to him. I just started telling him exactly what happened. And he's going, no, 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 no. He's going, shh, 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 be quiet. And I'm just speaking in a tone just like I'm speaking right now, except I'm speaking right into his microphone and it's booming over the entire court building, you know, <laughs> or over the whole courtroom. And uh, the jury's there, everybody's there. And um, so uh, they had me sit down, and the first thing they want to know is, what is your name? And I said, uh, my name is Jason Michael. He says, will you spell that? I said, yes, it's J-A-S-O-N hyphen M-A-C-H-A-E-L. And he says, all right, thank you. And so their uh, city attorney comes over for the prosecution, and the first thing he asked me is, he says, so you say your name's Jason hyphen Michael. I said, uh, when you're spelling it, yeah. And he says, uh... He says, so, he says, uh, your last name isn't such and such? And I said, I don't see any reason to bring my family into this hearing. And so he had to quit that questioning, and he says, so. Are you, he says, uh, okay, let me set this up better. Before that, he says, uh, he says, you know, what's your name? He says, so you're going to say your name's Jason Hyphen Michael. And then he says, uh, where do you reside? I said, I do not reside. And he says, well, well, well uh, how, how do you exist then? And I said, am I not sitting here before you, speaking to you? And so he let that drop silent. And then uh, he says, uh, he says, no, he says, uh, you don't understand. He said, uh, I want your address. And I said, I don't have a post. And so he says, he says, no, no, no. He says, what I want to know is where do you sleep at night? I said, at night I sleep next to the woman you have in bondage. And he says, what is your relationship with this woman? I said, my relationship with that woman is in the most ancient tradition of human beings. I said, I am a man and she is a woman and we are mates. And he says, oh, so you consider you're married? I said, yes, I do. And he goes, uh, he goes, uh, he says, well, by statute, you don't have a marriage license. I cut him off. I said, absolutely not. I said, I did not beg permission from the state to be with her. And so he let that drop and was seriously beginning to offend me. And, uh, so he, uh, he says, so he says, uh, uh, you know, your last name isn't such and such. And I said, no, I said, I'm, you know, uh, I don't see any reason to bring my family into this hearing. And he says, uh, so are you saying you're not this person? And he's got a photograph that he might have made at Kinko somewhere or something uh, with my corporate identity in one side, my person, my uh, LLC, you could say, uh, which is first metal, last name in black capital letters, uh, license number, uh, address, and zip code, which is a social district I don't belong to anymore. And uh, so basically what that is, is that's the identity of the agreement between myself and the state of Michigan for a chauffeur's driver's license or chauffeur driver's license. And so um, it has that all carefully placed in one box. It's not arranged the way it is on your ID. It's one box with my information in it of my corporation that I used to represent and no longer do have that agreement. And the other box is a picture of my face and my signature. He says, are you saying this picture isn't you? I said, yeah. I said, the picture is of my face. The signature is mine. But the corporate LLC in block capital letters in the box on the right, I am not that person. And the jury's looking at the same piece of paper, and they're just totally freaking cool with it, man. So it's on acceptance, and they accepted it. Everybody in the room had to accept it because it's the truth. And uh, he basically just, like, shuffled his little piece of paper back up to the people who gave it to him, the court. And uh, it wasn't certified. It wasn't actually a legal document. It wasn't anything that I think was legitimate to even bring into the hearing. But, you know, they can do anything they want. Basically. Now, explain to them why why was it so important that they establish your corporate identity in that way. 
Um, basically, their main purpose of doing what they were doing was to coerce or deceive me into identifying myself as, number one, a legal entity that they have authority over because they're the principal, uh, uh, what do you want to call like they're the uh, um, authorization service, you know, they're like a, um, I can't remember, they're the, the jurisdiction of licensor is aroused by the person requesting the permission. And so, like, the way it was explained to me, I could say, hey, can I have permission to cut your toenails? And you could authorize that. You could license me to cut your toenails or her toenails. And, uh, you know, by me... Well, I can't license you to cut her toenails. Right. You, you could if you had made that arrangement, you know. And with so her. With her. And so, Don't worry, I'm not interested in that. No. And so the thing is, is <laughs> the thing is, is uh, the the way that the legal doctrine goes is um, the jurisdiction of licensor is is um, created by the person requesting to be given permission or license. And so that's how they, they they gain jurisdiction. And what it is is, if you're a member, ward, or employee of the state, they have total authority and jurisdiction. And so they can hold criminal cases that are more like administrational hearings. Uh, like say you did something at work and they call you into the office and they want to make whatever determination they're going to do for discipline and or recording of the incident. And so it's just like that. They hold it more like that. And that's why when you go in there and say you had a pistol in your pocket and you go in there and they say, um, you know, you say, hey, no, I got a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. And Justice Ginsburg said that that means in the pockets. And they say, uh, you can't use your rights here. You don't have rights here. The reason they can do that is because you have waived those rights to become an employee, ward, or member of the state by claiming that you reside within the state or by being an employee of the state, such as a, a licensing agreement, like uh, the occupation of driver or chauffeur, uh, is, is you are a state driver, a state chauffeur. You, uh, by holding that identity or actually using, operating on that identity is what we're talking. And so you could have a driver's license do your driving gig during the day and then put your driver's license away and, you know, maintain your rights. But when most people are asked who they are, they flash their frickin' corporate ID. They flash their I'm a driver right now ID. And so now they want to know, like, why you're out of regulation and why do, you know, you have, like, 0.08% or higher blood alcohol content or, you know, what is this baggie in the glove box? And so um, they don't have that right or authority if you're traveling in your automobile, although they do have that right when you are acting as a licensed driver or chauffeur, operator of a motor vehicle engaged in transporting goods or persons over the highway for private gain. They have every right to exercise their authority because your use of the roads is extraordinary. It is not uh, by right. By right would be, that's why people on bicycles and people walking seem to have much more rights than you do in your car. It's because they do. They actually do have more rights because they're not identifying themselves with a license plate as a state transportation company. Yield to pedestrians. Right, yield to pedestrians. Also, the definition for traffic under U.S. code is the uh, moving of goods or persons over the highway for private gain, and so traffic signals are for traffic. They're not for people traveling in their automobiles. And so... Uh, it's interesting how all these little pieces of law are unknown to most people. But um, well, uh, go ahead and relate. You know the just how the the court case ended with in regards to you know, your testimony. You know with your you know, your you said your wife, your girlfriend, yeah. you know your mate, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the the pocket knife issue. Yeah, and so they tried to enforce this uh, phony ordinance, which basically doesn't apply to us because we didn't vote the ordinance in, and they didn't give us uh, due notice, which would be like due process would be notice. 
and the opportunity to defend. So like by them not putting up a sign that says, hey look, uh, make sure your pocket knife isn't out of regulation here before you cross this point, they haven't given us uh, prior warning to like, you know, try to accommodate their customs. And so, um, you know, to just jump right to, you know, grabbing her with a military officer and, and dragging her away and chaining her to a bench in some frickin' hidden, uh, you know, hardened facility somewhere is not on the order of, you know, upholding the law. And so, um, you know, uh, I don't remember where we were going. To, oh, yeah, the the trial. So, uh, the trial, their, their material false statements were revealed. Their malicious prosecution was revealed. Our... Uh, um, common law marriage was upheld. We held a common law court case inside their supposed administrational hearing. Uh, we used jury nullification to vindicate her uh, of any charges. I entered the case as a witness and a expert on knives due to my outfitting career, basically. Uh, they said, uh, what, is, what is your experience with knives? I said, well, uh, I have expert knowledge of knives. I've been a dealer, a buyer and dealer of them for the last, you know, better part of the last 10 years. And uh, so, Immediately, I am the person who, like, was, like, asked to measure the knife for the jury and to give, like, commentary <laughs> on what is, you know, like, uh, you know, how is a knife measured. All of these things are things that I established for the record. And uh, they actually had this ruler in there. They they said, I had an architectural scale, and I said, yeah, this is an architectural scale. It's uh, Japanese-made. It's highly accurate. And so their attorney says, well, he says, oh, we've got our ruler here, too. Would you like to uh, compare... Uh, measures and see if uh, ours is accurate enough to be used, and then you can determine which one we like to use, you know. And so I uh, certify his ruler against mine, so mine is the standard. And so uh, I certify his measure, his rule against mine, and uh, I say, yeah, that'll work, that's accurate enough to use. He says, all right, now we'll let you pick which ruler you want to use. And their ruler said, dare, across the front of it, you know. And they were being bastards about pushing this ruler on me, you know, like, how about the dare ruler? You want to touch that, huh? You want to take the dare? And so, like, uh, he says, so which ruler would you like to use to measure the knife for the jury? And I says, I'll take the dare. Just like that, dude, these fuckers. I said, I'll take the dare. And it's, like, him and the cop, dude. They're sitting in their little bench, like, way over there. I got the jury's, like, right here. And I was, like, I'll take the dare, you fuckers. And uh, so they freaking give me the dare ruler, and I measured it with the dare ruler for the jury and everything, you know. Because their whole thing was showmanship, and it didn't work. You know, they coached these guys. I heard them. Me and Julie both heard them coaching the frickin' police officers on how to, like, not look too overbearing and too imposing, look dutiful and officious, but not too frickin' militant, you know, and they're going over all this stuff, you know, and her and I didn't even, I didn't know what question, she asked me 20 questions, I didn't even know what she was going to ask me, we didn't write them down beforehand, the only ones we wrote together were the ones for the cops, and so we did it totally honestly and lawfully, we took control of their court and vindicated her handily easily frickin' proof that we didn't do anything unlawful or even unfrickin' savory at all. And so, um, the uh, jury foreman actually read not guilty with a grin, man. He had this ear-to-ear -ear Cheshire cat grin as he read not guilty. So, um, kind of a cool thing. Three-day jury trial, again, you know, uh, it takes time and effort and sometimes money and, and stress and hassle to uphold our rights and defend our character against being labeled as some kind of criminal for doing something that is in no way unlawful.
Well, thank you once again for sharing that story. I know, um, you know we, we talked about this stuff earlier, and it, it really does kind of amount to that. The theatrics you were talking about, before we got this conversation started, I was talking to people about the uh, the theatrics that, like, raw, you know, like the mall rent-a-cops put on to make it look like they're actually legitimate authorities and just convince people, and they go along with it because they don't know any better. Um, you know, there is so much of it that's in perception and perceived authority. We're kind of conditioned to go along with it because, you know, from childhood we're like yeah do what authority says and it's if all somebody has to do to get someone to obey usually is just kind of behave in that way that sets off the message that i'm supposed to do what this person says right well and the the thing is is there's got to be order and there's got to be a pecking order and no matter what like whether it's like a treehouse construction crew or like um you know an advanced uh like complex corporate management scheme you know there is a uh got to be a way to maintain order and everybody has their place the thing is is these guys are acting out of place they're acting off of their jurisdiction out of their authority uh and uh where they do that we have to not be uh you know out there saying you know fuck you pig you know i mean but you need to very firmly although um uh delicately at the same time enforce and protect your rights and the rights of others otherwise they, they will lose them you, know. you made a really good point about the you know the not going out of your way to accost them because then you at that point give them cause to in some way believe you could be hostile you know but instead you just have to know the law and you know that's how you can really disarm a police officer you know because you're certainly not disarming them by jumping in their face you need to make it very clear which one is the bad guy yeah not me you know that's the first thing i try to establish with them is look you know i'm not a bad guy you know i i you know, me and my wife, when we're out, we're the people who are capable and, and likely to help you if you were to be, uh, you know, hammered down and, and, and suffer an attack that you couldn't uh, uh, handle. Uh, people like us would be out, hopefully, in, 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 the, in the public to be able to assist, uh, you know, our law enforcement in, uh, you know, basically putting down uh, violent crime wherever it erupts. And I'm very serious about this. And uh, so, like I said, we don't... Uh, you know, I don't advocate any kind of unlawfulness. I don't advocate any kind of, uh, you know, like um, lawlessness at all. You know, there's no uh, buddy above the law, including police officers. Well, thanks again, Jason. And um, you're listening to V Radio.